Welcome to the Books and Arts Podcast. I'll be with you in a moment after a brief word from our sponsor. Regardless of party or political labels, there are amazing examples of real-life success stories happening across America. Local leaders are showing how to solve problems in health care, education, and other issues Washington just can't fix. Experience those stories in the new book, Falling in Love with America Again, by Jim DeMint and the Heritage Foundation. Get it today at inlovewithamerica.com. That's inlovewithamerica.com. Hello, this is Philip Terzian, literary editor of the Weekly Standard. I wanted to take a few minutes to give you a little preview of, of the books and arts section in the forthcoming issue of the Weekly Standard, which is a combined issue dated March 31st, April 7th. The lead piece is a review by a literary scholar named Emily Colette Wilkinson of a new novel, a debut novel actually, by a young novelist named Mary Miller. The novel is called The Last Days of California, and I headlined it Getting There, a debut novel about the American road trip family style. It sounds like a a both delightful and slightly disconcerting novel that, and I don't usually judge fiction on this basis, but it sounds like it would make a great movie, but it's about a uh, the road trip of a slightly dysfunctional family out to California from somewhere in the Midwest, I think, as I recall. But their their purpose in going to California is apparently the apocalypse is going to arrive on a certain day. I think the parents are fundamentalists of some sort, and I guess um, they've been told or have somehow discerned that the end times are upon us, and it's it's probably a good idea to be at a certain place in California to, to witness the event. And the novel is told from the point of view of one of the young daughters of the family who's, like many uh, early, I, I guess she's a early adolescent, maybe a teenager, is struggling not only with growing up, but also with the, the religious faith that her parents uh, believe in so fervently, and her observations about the world around her really sound quite interesting, and as I don't mean this as an insult, but it sounds like it would make a great film, but uh, it also sounds like a, a rather interesting novel called The Last Days of California by Mary Miller. That is followed by a, uh, a book a review uh, of a book entitled Asia's Cauldron, The South China Sea and the End of a Stable Pacific by Robert D. Kaplan. This is reviewed by McCubbin Owens, who is a professor of national security affairs at the Naval War College in Newport and a frequent contributor to the Weekly Standard. But it's, it's, a, it's a description of a little corner of the Pacific, the South China Sea, which is bordered on the north by China, on the west by Indochina, uh, on the east by the Philippines, and above them Taiwan, and of course Japan is uh, further northeast. We've we've provided at the Weekly Standard a, a, a custom-made map to make it all a little more uh, obvious to you, but the, the point of Mr. Kaplan's book, and this is perhaps especially important when we're so distracted by events in Crimea and, and the Middle East, that whatever 
conflict we can look forward to with the Chinese in the Pacific is probably going to take place in this very strategic corner of the ocean where China is not only feeling its oats militarily, but is engaged in disputes with its neighbors, Japan, Philippines, Taiwan, and others over the status of of certain islands and who has naval rights and whatnot, how far into the South China Sea. It's, it's, a, it's a tender spot where trouble could easily brew, and I don't know to what extent we can take seriously the Obama administration's uh, pivot to Asia, but if it does pivot to Asia, the South China Sea is where they're going to be looking specifically, and Mac Owens gives us a very good description of what the issues are and what could conceivably go wrong and what we can do about it. After that comes a review of a, it's a kind of a tragic coincidence, it's a biography entitled The Little Girl Who Fought the Great Depression, Shirley Temple in 1930s America. The reviewer is Richard Streiner, who's a history professor at Washington College in Maryland, but also uh, something of an expert on the cinema and uh, culture of 1930s America. And the book is a overview of Shirley Temple's cinematic career, which lasted from about 1934 to the late 40s, and what it meant at the time to Americans how unique it was. Here you had a little girl who was five, six, seven, eight years old who for three or four years running was the number one box office hit in America. I think when Shirley Temple died last month, she died February 10th, gave some of us an opportunity to go back and look at some of the some of her performances from that era, and she really was an extraordinary even by child star standards, she really was an extraordinary performer, and it's easy to see how how she uh, captured audiences as she did. Uh, it's often said that among the many things that distracted Americans from the, the travails of the Depression era uh, were the great movie musicals of that era, the Busby Berkeley movies and the MGM musicals, and certainly the Shirley Temple musicals, and Sounds like a great book, and it, it largely concentrates on her career in the 30s and early 40s, really her, her golden age, and it sounds like a fun read. Rabbi David Walpe, who's a rabbi of Temple Sinai in Los Angeles, a kind of well-known public intellectual rabbi, has written for, for the Weekly Standard several times, gives us a very... A very good review of a, a book called The Ten Commandments, A Short History of an Ancient Text by a Harvard professor named Michael Coogan. And the purpose of the book, it seems, is to not only convey the history of the Ten Commandments and its cultural impact, but also explain to readers uh, why it should never be displayed in public spaces in a in a politically secular nation such as ours. And I think Rabbi Wolpe takes a very patient attitude toward the author's fervor. It's it's an interesting book, and it's well done, except for he's got a kind of bug in his ear about the political status of the Ten Commandments. And, and David Wolpe, I think, makes the 
what seems to me obvious point that no matter what your religious beliefs may be or may not be, there really is hardly any getting around the the cultural and historical importance of the Ten Commandments. No matter what we may believe about them or of them, um, they're part of our heritage. He's written a very elegant and informative essay about that. We also have a, a review from a, a new contributor named James Matthew Wilson, who teaches English at Villanova, but it's a review of a book of poetry called The Republic of Virtue by Paul Lake, which I commend to our readers for two reasons. One is that Mr. Wilson makes it clear that it's 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 a, a distinguished collection. Uh, some of the poetry sounds really quite eloquent and interesting, but the author, Paul Lake, is what what we call a new formalist, which is to say a school of, contemporary school of poetry, which as, as its name might imply, uh, relies on more traditional formal modes of poetry. This is not free verse moving off in different surreal directions. It's it's declarative, almost narrative poetry in very old, traditional, old-fashioned poetic forms, making uh, philosophical points in a poetic fashion. And it sounds very interesting. I I look forward to reading the book myself. We also have a review by another regular contributor to our pages, Amy Henderson, who's a, a museum curator here in Washington. But it's a biography of James McNeil Whistler, the American uh, artist who, although American-born and actually was a West Point dropout, uh, nevertheless spent most of his career in England. And I've headlined the the review, Whistler's Mother's Son, to some degree in recognition of the fact that when you say James Whistler, I, th I think probably most people tend to think of his famous arrangement in gray and black otherwise known as Whistler's mother, his his um, side portrait of his mother done in the 1880s. But of course, Whistler was much more than that. He was a he was a classic sort of late 19th century art for art's sake artist who experimented in many different forms, who had a singularly characteristic style, whose who also was more than just a painter. Uh, here in Washington, for example, in the Freer Gallery of Art, which is largely devoted to Asian art, is something called the Peacock Room, which is a room that Whistler, uh, we would now say designed as, or decorated for a wealthy patron in England. And it was done in very elaborate late 19th century Art Nouveau style featuring peacock motifs and, of course, some Whistler paintings on the wall, which was moved absolutely intact in toto over to the United States in the 20th century. And you can see it at the Freer Gallery, but it's also very characteristic of Whistler. And, and A.B. Henderson very nicely puts Whistler, uh, not only describes Whistler, uh, but also puts him in the context of art history and uh, what we might call transatlantic art of the of the late 19th early 20th century uh, Whistler survived actually into the early 20th century our final piece is John Podhoret's movie review this week he went to see the the Grand Budapest Hotel which I won't 
spoil. John doesn't go into too much detail about the plot of the movie, but he does talk a great deal about the atmospherics of the movie. The director is Wes Anderson, and his his movies all tend to be very atmospheric and very heavy on details and period details. And the question, of course, is uh, that's all very well, but is there a story in there? And John has a has a clear answer to the question, which you'll enjoy reading, as always. As I say, this is a combined issue of the magazine, March 31st, April 7. We will not be publishing next week, and so I won't be I won't be podcasting uh, next week um, as I might otherwise. So there will be a, a week interregnum uh, between now and the next time we talk. But it's as always, it's a pleasure to give you just a brief preview of uh, what appears in the back of the book. And I look forward to meeting with you again two weeks from now. Thank you.